1: This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Revelation.
2: I only am trying as a pastor to be a facilitator teaching, using a gift of teaching, for us to study God's word together. But as I've said on many occasions, remember Paul pointed out the fact that the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians because the Bereans searched the scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. Even the apostle Paul commended a group of people for their diligent pursuit of the scriptures to verify what he was saying was true.
1: We take for granted the incredibly easy access we have to Scripture in our language and legal to carry with you and read whenever you please. It's an amazing blessing, and it's enabled us to all be like the Barian Christians. A good, healthy pastor or church leader will be completely comfortable with and even encourage you to weigh their words against the Bible. As Pastor Gary will explain in today's message, this is a vital part of our walk. Sadly, you can't believe everything that's said from a pulpit. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Revelation, Chapter 2, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection.
2: Let's focus on the beginning and and then the time period between 606 and 1517. First, a little bit about Thyatira. The only other reference to Thyatira, this city, outside of the book of Revelation is one reference in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16, verse 14, a woman by the name of Lydia, Paul's first convert to Christianity in the city of Philippi, a woman by the name of Lydia was from Thyatira. Her occupation, the Bible tells us in Acts 16, gives us a little bit of insight into the city's famous commodity, because in Acts 16, it says that Lydia was a a dealer of purple cloth. Uh, This particular city, Thyatira, was known for its purple dye. It's what made this city famous, and it was derived from a shellfish that was indigenous to the area. By crushing this particular shellfish, it would make this purplish, reddish-purplish dye. Today, that color is called Turkish Red. Thyatira is situated about 30 miles halfway between Pergamos and Sardis, and Thyatira was first established as a Macedonian colony by Alexander the Great after the destruction of the Persian Empire. Today, Thyatira is the modern city called Akasar, and it has a population of about 50,000 The city was riddled with idolatry. That's going to be obviously the theme of this. This letter to this church, Jesus is calling out their affection for idols. And that's what Thyatira was known for. And so Jesus alludes to it in this letter by by mentioning the name Jezebel. He calls out a woman named Jezebel. We'll talk about that in a moment. And Thyatira was known for having a temple For fortune tellers presided over by a powerful female oracle. So it could be that Jesus is referring to this particular woman or what Jezebel represents from Old Testament scriptures. There were more commercial guilds in Thyatira, a guild is kind of like a union, than in any other Roman province because they were such an industrialized city that was known for their great commercial trades. So they had guilds for dyers, um, wool workers, linen workers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, and bronze smiths. They all had their own little union, and that's just what was happening in Thyatira. Now, during this particular time period, 606 to 1517, let's talk a little bit about the, the emergence of the Roman Catholic Church here. Um, here's a list of just a few things that um, were introduced into the church because of the Catholic traditions. The first thing I want you to note is that the title of Pope was given to Boniface III by Roman Emperor Focas in 606 AD. That's why, for purposes of a timeline, we talk about the emergence of the Roman Catholic Church in 606 AD. Now, you, you talk to a die in the wool roman catholic they will say what are you talking about the roman catholic church was was way before 606 ad you're centuries off and peter was our first pope that's what they will tell you but what we're talking about here is this that in the first several centuries since constantine and theodosius made christianity a state religion there were different bishops who oversaw different churches in the regions of the Roman Empire. But something happened in 606 AD that made the Roman Catholic Church much like the modern Roman Catholic Church today. And that is that when Boniface III became bishop, Emperor Focus wrote a letter to him making an imperial edict, as the emperor of the Roman Empire at the time, And Focus said to Boniface III, I now deem you as the bishop, the universal bishop over all churches of the Roman Empire. And thus, he gave him the title Pope. And so that's why when we talk about the emergence of the Roman Catholic Church, we're going to date it when we're 606 AD, although the Roman Catholics will say, no, it's first century because Peter was was our first Pope. But this is what happens here in 606 AD. Uh, Sabinian, who was the last bishop of Rome, dies. He's replaced by Boniface III, and then Focus makes this imperial decree of the Roman government proclaiming Boniface III as the head of all churches. So he is given this universal title, and Emperor Focus then transfers the title from Constantinople back to Rome. And Boniface III then takes his position as Bishop of Rome, Universal Bishop or Pope over the Church. And Catholicism is formally born in its final evolved form. But the East, okay, so now you have a separation of the Roman Empire. You have those who disagree in the East with Constantinople as the capital and those who embrace this in the West with Rome as the capital. And there becomes a bit of a power struggle in, in the centuries to follow. Um, the East, Constantinople, never accepts Rome's claims and finally split fellowship with Rome in 1054 AD, forming the Eastern Orthodox Church versus the Roman Catholic Church in the West. But you have all these other doctrines. You have the doctrine of kissing the Pope's foot, which was proclaimed in 709 AD as a ritual. And by the way, if you go today to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, there's a bronze, bronze statue of St. Peter. He's, he's seated. And people who make pilgrimage there continue to touch or kiss his feet, so much so that over the centuries, the toes on the right foot of the Apostle Peter are gone. They've been rubbed off. They've been rubbed off by everybody making pilgrimage and touching it. Bronze toes are gone now off of... Peter's feet, because of people touching and kissing his feet, because they're recognizing him in their tradition as the first pope. Also, the use of holy water was implemented in 850 A.D. Mechanical praying with beads or the rosary invented by Peter the hermit in 1090 A.D. Transubstantiation established in 1215 A.D. What is transubstantiation? If you don't have a Roman Catholic background, you may not be aware that when Catholics take Mass, they take the elements, the wafer and and the, the cup, They believe that there is a miraculous event that happens, whereby when one ingests the wafer and the cup, the wine, that it miraculously becomes the actual flesh and blood of Jesus. Now, I've had people, as I have explained this, I've had some Roman Catholics email me, so don't email me, please. I, I get enough emails. Um, unless you have a happy email. Uh, but, uh, but I've had Roman Catholics email me and say, that is not what we believe. And I've had to actually cut and paste out of, the, out of the catechism of the Roman Catholic Church their own doctrine in print. This is what Roman Catholics believe. That when you take the wafer and the cup of wine... That, you, that, that there is the belief that, I don't believe this, I don't believe Scripture teaches this, but there's this belief that you are actually ingesting that it becomes miraculously the flesh and the blood of Jesus. And it is, it is because in John chapter 6, Jesus, when he's teaching his disciples, he, he talks to them about eating of his flesh and, and, and drinking of his blood, and, and some f- leave him because they think this is a difficult teaching, and, and Jesus clarifies in the end, and he, and he speaks about how these things I have spoken to you are spirit. In other words, he's saying that we have, to, we have to be consumed with him. But it isn't the literal idea that we're consuming him by like partaking of his body and partaking of his blood. But we, in a, in a faith, in a spiritual sense, if you really are a follower of Christ, we must be consumed with him. That he can't just be relegated to the fringe of our lives. We have to be consumed with him. That's what he means there in John chapter 6. But the Roman Catholic Church took it to be very literal and then therefore teaches transubstantiation. That there's this... This, this molecular thing that happens in the process of receiving the communion elements whereby you are actually ingesting the flesh and the blood of Jesus. I don't believe it, but that's what transubstantiation teaches. And then the Bible was forbidden to laymen. Only the priests could read the Bible. That was 1229 AD. In fact, those of you who grew up Catholic, you know, if you're old enough to know, that the Mass was completely taught in Latin up until the 1960s. I mean, you could, if you would go to Mass before whatever the year was in the, in the mid-60s, you would sit there and hear the entire thing in Latin and not even, even understand a whole th- anything about it. So not only were Catholics discouraged from reading their Bibles because you, you're not able, so they would say, to interpret it the way that a, a priest could, okay? which, isn't, which isn't true. You've been given the same spirit. And you can read your Bibles, understand your Bibles, and pray for understanding the same way that I can as a pastor, any priest can. But you know the Bible was forbidden to lame, and only the priest could could read the Bible. So I, you know, I can't tell you how many people with Roman Catholic backgrounds would come to Cornerstone and say to me, that's so refreshing to bring my Bibles, I've never understood my Bible. And that's because you're not encouraged to read your Bibles. You're encouraged to listen to a priest tell you what your Bible says. Um, but you know... There's only one mediator between God and man, and and it's Christ Jesus. And I only am trying as a pastor to be a facilitator teaching, using a gift of teaching for us to study God's word together. But as I've said on many occasions, remember, Paul pointed out the fact that the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians because the Bereans searched the scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. Even the apostle Paul commended a group of people for their diligent pursuit of the scriptures to verify what he was saying was true. I encourage you to do the same thing. Don't take what I say at face value. Read your Bibles for yourselves. Study your Bibles. There's great resources out there now, lexicons and and Greek and Hebrew that'll translate for you, and, and you can read your Bibles and become educated in what the scriptures say. This is important for all of us to grow in our faith to know God's word. Now, In the church of Thyatira here, Jesus identifies himself as the Son of God, but he identifies himself as the Son of God with eyes of flame and feet like brass. Uh, This is the only time in the book of Revelation that the title Son of God is used, and uh, Jesus uses it. Uh, in conjunction with his eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass because he is introducing himself in this letter as the righteous judge. When his eyes are on fire, he's upset about something, okay? That's the idea. Feet of bronze. Bronze is a metal in Scripture that is always um, meaning judgment. He's coming here as the righteous judge. He wants to judge this church because of their idolatry. And and so he he comes here uh, with anger towards Thyatira's sin, but he commends them. He commends them about five things in the text here. He commends them for their works, their love, their service, their faith, and their patience. And he adds there in verse 19, the last are more than the first. In other words, their good works are increasing. And he likes that about them. And he commends them for these different things. It, It is remarkable, by the way, that none of the preceding three churches were commended for their love, but Thyatira is, in addition to their works and their service and their faith and their patience. The word service in verse 19 is the Greek word diakonia. We get our English word deacon. Deacons serve in the church. They are lay ministers. They are people who use their gifts to minister to people, and and Jesus is commending them for all this. You're ministering to people, you're loving people, you're serving people, you have faith, you have patience. But then he has this big complaint, and the complaint against them is that they are tolerant of sin. And in particular, they are tolerant of this Jezebel issue, where authority is is equal to Scripture. They they, They seduced God's people with idolatry and a system of works. Now again, there's There's a matter of interpretive debate as to whether or not Jezebel is a real person or only a biblical type from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, in 1 Kings chapter 16, we're introduced to a woman by the name of Jezebel. Jezebel becomes the wife of the seventh king of Israel whose name is King Ahab. Ahab should never have married her. Why? Because she was a pagan, idolatrous woman. Uh, She was not a Jew who worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Bible says that she was the daughter of a king of the Sidonians, whose name was Ethbaal. Ethbaal means, her dad's name means, with Baal. So his very name is a pagan name. She is the daughter of a pagan king. And Josephus, the first century Roman historian, says that Ethbaal was a priest of the occult. And so this is the kind of home that Jezebel grew up in. And in fact, in 2 Kings 9.22, it specifically says in 2 Kings 9.22 that Jezebel practiced idolatry and witchcraft. Names those very things. Ahab, the king of Israel, marries her. Guess what? She introduces this from her own upbringing into the nation of Israel. And Ahab acquiesces, and he promotes idolatry in the land of Israel this time. And it's a very terrible time. It's a low point in Israel's history. All the idolatry is the result of Jezebel's influence to the king of Israel. Now, when Jesus calls out this church about the Jezebel problem, he either means that there is a literal woman, and some, some commentaries believe that there was a, a literal woman in the church whose name was probably Sambathi, and that she's like a Jezebel because she has the same spirit, or Jesus is actually saying that you are allowing idolatry in the church similar to the time of Jezebel, or it can be a combination of both. That she was a real woman in the church of Thyatira who so persuaded the believers to engage in a system of idolatry that Jesus compared her to the Jezebel who had married King Ahab and seduced the nation into terrible idol worship. Either way, it speaks of a bad thing, idolatry, idolatry in the church, and they tolerate it. Now, listen, you, you have to be aware that when you look at this particular timeline in church history... That the Roman Catholic Church, again, I'm I'm not saying anything to disparage. I'm just pointing out the facts. There are a lot of idols in the Roman Catholic Church. A lot of icons, a lot of statues, a lot of praying to these things. Praying to saints. Praying to Mary. Idolizing people in that sense. And so it fits here in the timeline of, of church history. The Roman Catholic Church is steeped in idolatry. It is a works oriented religious system. I know that there are some Roman Catholics who truly believe in Jesus and they're going to heaven. I get that. Um, there are true believers in every, you know, there, there are some misguided Methodists and some true believers. There are some misguided Baptists and true believers. There are, some, you know, in every aspect of religious circles, you you do have people who are true believers, but unfortunately, in the Roman Catholic Church, the the combination of a a love for Jesus as Savior and the adaptation of idolatrous practices make for um, a very corrupt religious system, if I if I can say it that way. I mean, I, again, I, you know, I'm probably going to get emails on this, but I'm just I'm just trying to speak the truth. There needs to be an understanding that salvation is by grace alone. Through faith alone in Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with how many good things you do or penance or um, ways that you try to compensate by doing other good things to make up for the bad things. Jesus Christ died for all the bad things. We're all bad people who all need a Savior, and that's how you get saved by trusting Jesus Christ. You need to stop praying to Mary. You need to stop praying to different saints. The rosary beads are useless. You can't pray somebody out of purgatory. They make a decision and they die and their fate is sealed. So they need Christ now. That's when you, when you should be praying for them. And all this other stuff that have been incorporated into the Roman Catholic Church have done nothing more than corrupt the true and simple message of Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus Christ alone. Okay, And those of you who have come out of that background know what I'm talking about. You know more than anybody what I'm talking about. And and so Jesus says here in this letter, in verse 21 and 22, he says, I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. I will cast her into a sickbed into great tribulation unless they repent. Now, I don't believe he's suggesting that all Catholics are going to end up going through the great tribulation. Rather, it means that anyone within the church who is found to be in spiritual fornication of works and idols, because that's what it really is, rather than a personal relationship of grace with the Lord Jesus Christ, will suffer tribulation. To believe in a religious system of works that denies the finished work of Christ is a corrupt religious system. Now, he shares rewards here, and I know our time has escaped us, so let me just mention on the reward side here, Verses 24 and on, Jesus speaks to the rest who do not have this doctrine. So, again, there's a remnant. There's always a remnant who have not known the depths of Satan, who hold fast to what you have until I come. Throughout time, God has always had his remnant everywhere those who hold fast to him when others may not. And the promise that Jesus gives the church of Thyatira for their faithful perseverance are twofold. Number one, power over the nations or authority to rule. Believers will one day rule with Christ. In Revelation 20 verse 4, John says that he sees a vision here of people on thrones who have been given authority to judge. And that's the saints. We judge with the Lord in administering his justice in the earth during the millennial kingdom. And the second thing that he promises here in this letter to those who overcome, to the remnant, he says, I will give them the morning star. Now, in Revelation 22, 16, you can just write in the margin of your Bible there, where he talks about, I'm going to give him the morning star to those who overcome. Um, in Revelation twenty two sixteen, 16, Jesus says that he himself is the morning star. So he's basically promising the ultimate prize to faithful believers Himself, that's what he's saying here. But there's a special meaning to morning star. When he uses this language here, when he talks about the morning star, it is actually a fulfillment of one of the last passages of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, where the prophet Malachi makes this glorious promise of the rising of the sun of righteousness, S-U-N, with healing in his wings. And Malachi sees the day when Jesus, the son of righteousness, with healing in his wings, will come as the morning star a fulfillment of the prophet Malachi to bring ultimate healing to our souls. And so the church of Thyatira, Jesus has some complaints and he has some commendation, but he always ends with a reward to all who overcome. Verse 27, He shall rule them with the rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.
1: Hope jump in and you'll find the cornerstones. Your connection run towards your new life. That's all we have for today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to listen to this edition in Revelation again, or if you'd like to explore other messages from Pastor Gary through his Bible teachings, just visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. Or you can download our mobile app to stay connected to the truth of God's Word everywhere you go. It's a great way to have a quiet time anytime. You'll find a link on our website, along with more information about the church behind this ministry, Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. If you're in the area we'd love to meet you, come visit us. You'll find service times and more information about Cornerstone Chapel at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Is there anything happening in your life right now that we could be praying for? We'd be honored to do that for you. Or is there anything God's doing that deserves some rejoicing? please let us know. We love that we can interact with our listeners. So send us a quick email and we'll get back to you soon. Prayer at CornerstoneChapel.net That's Prayer at CornerstoneChapel.net With that, our time with you has come to an end for today. Put a marker where we left off in this final book of the Bible and make plans to join Pastor Gary next time for more. Right here on Cornerstone Connection.